Hello and welcome to Noise Creators episode 20. Today I'm here with Blake Carnage from the band Versa or Versa Emerge, but you probably also know that he produced one of the records that I think, well, it definitely had the biggest impact on me in 2015. And everyone I know seems to be talking about the production on Paris's White Noise record, and we get a lot into that and his thoughts and influences on producing and a lot of cool stuff that gives some real insight on how he's made such cool music, and I think this is a really rad episode. I was really excited because I just love this record, and I constantly have bands coming in to the studio talking about it, so it was great to get some insight on this, and I think it's pretty awesome, so check it out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, Tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? Right now, I've got a actually a Chameleon Labs uh, mic. It's a smaller company. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we use a lot of their pre's. They're great. Yeah, um, it's their it's their microphone. The I think it's the TS uh, one or yeah, or one two three something like that. Yeah. Right, right, right. It's got the it's just the condenser mic with interchangeable capsules. For, oh yeah. Then, yeah, that's great. And I've got that going into an Avalon seven thirty seven uh, SP vocal or not vocal chain uh, just a channel strip nice and then from there it goes through the apogee ensemble and then into pro tools very cool so tell me about your background in music guitar has always been my main instrument so at a pretty pretty young age i picked up a guitar and started taking lessons from there i kind of realized that i was probably a little bit better at music than I was at skateboarding or riding BMX bikes or anything else <laughs> that at the time that uh, that I was interested in in uh, you know the exclusion of the of having to deal with breaking my arm and, and having injuries and, and oh, I don't know it was I don't know how if that was ever you know a very serious thing but um yeah I just started uh, playing around um, town um, I'm from a town in Florida called Port St Lucie which doesn't have a massive music scene it, it barely has you know anything going on these days but there was a blues club that I was invited to by my guitar teacher at the time basically he used to invite me to sit in with his band when they would have their open jams on Thursday nights so my parents would take me you know sixth grade just kind of come with me and and uh, we'd wait for for my turn and I'd get up there and and jam with so yeah that was a that was kind of how I got started from there you know when I got into high school ninth grade I started 
started a band, um, and I was probably in about three different bands. Um, and by the time I graduated high school, um, my band was was touring, you know, all the time. So jumped right into it. So was that Versa Emerge or was it a different band? That was Versa Emerge, yes. Cool. So you guys are touring even, you know, in high school? Directly out of high school. So yeah, we, we graduated the following fall. We had our first tour ever. That was that was the fall of 2007. And we actually had a different singer at the time. And then, and then the following year is when Sierra, who was, who was the uh, vocalist, joined. Nice. And so how do you get from Versa Merge into producing? So I used to get pretty frustrated with the writing process and, and I didn't find it very um, fruitful to, to sit in a room, you know, with six people and tr- always try to be on the same page, especially mm. when you're limited on time and resources, which I think it's, it's hard to come by a, a group of people that have the chemistry for it and have the ability to do it. It's not an easy thing to, to, to find these days. So basically I kind of took the writing process over to you know, my bedroom, and, and I bought a small Pro Tools rig. I had an M-Box, uh, M-Box mm-hmm. 2, and uh, just like a, you know, I think it was Audio-Technica AT2020 uh, vocal mic. And starting producing demos that way, um, they didn't sound, you know, good at all. But it was, it was just a way to kind of start to try and get the ideas that we had inside our heads out in a way that the others could hear it, and we didn't have to kind of play the guessing game. So yeah, that's that's how I got into producing. That was 2006, and you know, I think I think that struggle to kind of get what's in your head out was ongoing, and it's I mean it, it still is. But I think there was a point I think I reached probably three or four years ago where it was almost more of a realization that you know like nobody else is really going to hear something the exact same way that you hear it, and the only way for me to kind of be happy with. The, the recordings that I was trying to make was to kind of just find the confidence to finish these recordings on my own and realize that, you know, there, hey, there isn't exactly a correct way to do this. There's just my way or there's a different mm-hmm. way. I think that was the point. It was like uh, uh, 2012 is when, when I first produced one of our own releases. Mm-hmm. So it was a gradual thing, you know, and it was, it was a lot of kind of frustration and, and trying to learn but not having whole lot of resources. I think the most helpful thing was being around other writers and producers and kind of picking up on the things that I liked that they did and asking them questions. And that was, that was the main fuel for learning how to do everything. Yeah. And I think that that's a common occurrence in this podcast is that like other people aren't able to fulfill your vision. So you have to take matters into your own hands at some point. Right. And it's becoming so easy nowadays. You know, you Mm -hmm. can make a record in your bedroom on a laptop. You know, that's something that you couldn't have done even, you know, seven, eight years ago. It's true. It just emerged in the last 10 years. So I've seen on Instagram that you've kind of uh, made the joke that you could make a studio just about anywhere. Do you have a set studio? Do you, are you always just traveling? Like, what, what do you do for a studio these days? I've got a small space in Brooklyn um, at the moment. That's where I'm at right now. But yeah, I'm actually, uh, before, before I was in Brooklyn, I was down in Florida for a few years, and I had a studio set up that I was working out of and making it work. You know, it was kind of bare minimum, but I, I didn't really fully realize the term bare minimum until I got to New York and realized that the only thing you can the only you know place you can really afford is is a closet. You know you just have to yeah, cram yeah, everything yeah. in, and you know I yeah, had to, I, I had to kind of 
leave some stuff behind. I, I, I always make that that joke of the, uh, you, you know, the, that like people outside of New York will be like, oh, it's a small studio. It's like you don't know small studios until you realize that every <laughs> studio in New York has like a loft built on top of that tall ceiling yeah. just to cram some stuff up there. Like we, we come up with the most inventive ways to cram it into our the studio oh, we have. My gosh. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you, you, you come up here, uh, you have a setup here, and so is that where you usually work out of? Yeah, it's where I usually work out of, um, and it, all it is is one room, and it's, mm-hmm. um, it's just, I work off my laptop, and I've got, mm-hmm. I mean, I've got like a display, I've got a couple of different speakers and synthesizers and maybe two or three guitars, but I, I, I so rarely record guitar that it's, it's something that, I mean, I'm living about six blocks from here and I've got a basement so I can, I can just walk over and grab something if I need it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So is guitar your only instrument or do you play anything else? I think guitar is one of the, one of the main things I would say that I, I can play. I can play keys, not properly by any means. I think, I think mm-hmm. I play what they call producer style, but I just <laughs> kind of something I picked up on, you know, like throughout the production process and more just like trying to, trying to mix in some other sounds and textures. And then, you know, I feel like I've definitely improved it at playing keyboard, but guitar has been my main thing. And, and, uh, and I do some singing as well, but you know, definitely not as much as a singer might. Gotcha. So we've been saying this thing on the podcast that like, you know, on one side you have the Steve Albini who like just puts up mics and gets takes for you. And then on the other side, you have a John Feldman who totally rewrites your songs for you. Um, where do you see yourself uh, on that scale most of the time with the projects you do? It's kind of hard for me to relate to either of those styles. I mean, maybe hmm. certain things here and there, but I, I really, really prefer to be with a project the entire way through from from the writing to the recording to the sometimes mixing but you know if 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 it's a possibility I really like to have another talented mixer come in and but you know I still like want to be involved throughout mm-hmm. the mixing process and and um, usually get pretty heavy on mixed notes which is you know can frustrate a lot of mixers I've I've come to know but I think the production and the songwriting for me at least, is is really integral. The track is built at the same time the vocals are being written, and this is just usually how it happens. It's not every time. I think it's always a little bit different, but um, it seems it seems that that's the way it's been happening, you know, with different artists. But, you know, I don't mm. work with that many artists. Um, I think it's, I've got a kind of a small, tight-knit box of projects I've been working on recently. And, and I think maybe, I don't know, maybe my process would be different if I worked with more or different artists but I, I think it all is all tied into the style of the music and and kind of has it has a way of working in this in this way i've kind of been doing it for me at least gotcha so what do you think you bring to records most often you know i don't know i think it's always different but i think i mean the, the way that i i usually like to start out is you know meet the artist and just kind of pick their brain a little bit and see where they're at with their own ideas because it has to be their idea because i've I've been in writing sessions as well where, you know, somebody's insisted on not listening to my ideas, you know, and mm-hmm. being the artist that's like, that's pretty soul crushing. And uh, it can, it's something that I, you know, after experiencing didn't want, you know, to ever make anyone feel that way. I think it's important for me to get a, like a folder full of rough demos or ideas or even even iPhone voice memos. And sometimes those are the most inspiring, you know, the, the rough ones mm. that haven't really taken a direction yet as far as the production, but still kind of have a lot of possibilities open. 
and kind of just, I don't know, spending a little bit of time with the ideas, but not going too much, just making sure that there is enough good material for day one that we can actually both come into the studio fresh and, and listen through these ideas and, um, I don't know, make a favorites folder and then make a, make a smaller folder after that, depending on how much time we're going to have. You know, just kind of picking the strongest songs. You know, sometimes it's, I mean, more than often, actually, it's, it's the ideas that the artist maybe didn't expect to work on, but kind of just had lingering because those tend to be the ones that are, you know, just interesting enough to want to keep around, but, you know, maybe isn't necessarily boxed or packaged in a certain way yet to where it's forced or, you know, or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's kind of how it's worked. So what's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? I think it's always a red flag for me whenever an artist or a band has maybe three or four, you know, just a few demos and not much more or doesn't have it flowing at the moment because that's, um, that's hard because you can get stuck in your own head and you feel like you can you know you can only keep writing the same song over and over i think quantity in the beginning is just so important because as long as you've got you know these ideas flowing and, and you're being creative and it's flowing i feel like it's easier to kind of like pick out the quality within those but starting out with like plenty of firewood and going in and having all these pieces to work with because who knows you know one one riff could inspire an entire song and it could happen in a couple hours you know and it could be something brand new that we were both excited about yeah that's really good what's a smart thing or a mistake you see a lot of bands do with vocals when going into record yeah i was actually uh i worked with an artist a couple weeks ago and we were texting before the session and and um talking about about vocal production just a little bit i was kind of saying how the vocals have to be treated like babies almost like you have these like vocal takes and they have to be as as good as they can be obviously before you even start messing with the sonics because that's only about 10% of it i think it has to be an amazing singer and it has to be the perfect take and it has to be the way i try and go about getting that is by maybe trying to capture the vibe and capture the main vocal within the demo because once you get that demo vocal out, then you're just trying to copy that. You know, if you're if it's something that you're excited about, you're just trying to kind of get back to that demo vibe mm-hmm. and copy that. So I think if you can nail the vocal immediately, <laughs> which is sometimes pretty hard to do, and it's just a lot of it is about timing. Mm-hmm. A lot of it, a lot of it's about you know like okay, now the song's pretty much there. You know, the song's like eighty percent there. It's safe now to hit record and actually like demo this vocal out because it's very well, you know probably going to be the final vocal and then extras you can go in and you know that's that's easy that's just uh, backgrounds and harmonies which i i don't usually go overboard on yeah i mean and then after after we've got the vocal takes and and i feel like it's good and it's solid you know like i'll i'll go through and i'll be incredibly ocd about the the uh the pitch and the tuning and everything and make making sure it does not sound like it has been touched it still has that natural thing but uh still is very strong and has to be like the reference for the listener to listen to forever and ever and ever. <laughs> yes. What happens when you and a band disagree about something? Then they're right because it's their project. You know, if there's a disagreement, I'm not. I, I don't know. Like it's hard to move forward sometimes. Whenever if it's something, I think it's in those situations. It's move on to the next idea. Just because I think so much. Of, so much of it is the vibe and and kind of just making sure that you know everybody's excited about what we're doing. I'm never one to just like put my foot down and say this is how it's got to be or you're you know or take off that's not how I operate 
Nice. At least in the circles I run in, I think this Paris record you produced has been one of the most influential records on whatever we want to call a scene or whatever. Um, I'd love to get some insight in some of the ideas you guys had. I think one of the most interesting things on this record is for so long, it's either been like, you know, you're doing the rock part or the electronic part of the band, but this is the most seamlessly woven together uh, elements of... Oh, thank you. Like, you know, uh, I, I, that, that the first listen, I just immediately went, I've been waiting for this forever for a band to actually be able to put these two together and not have it seem like a fucking joke. And wow. I was curious if you guys had any ideas, some hypotheses or like what you did to go into that and make that happen. Well, thank you. First of all, that's a massive compliment, but I think I kind of had a, if you want to say a failed attempt at this in the couple years before, because uh, my band, we were working on our second album, and we had this idea about this sound, mm -hmm. um, and we, we hired producers to work together, and the whole thing just didn't work. It was a complete failure of the process and a complete failure of, of everything, and we didn't end up with, with finished songs and definitely didn't end up with... I don't even know if we knew what we were trying, if what we wanted. But coming out of that, I kind of had a, a, lot of, a lot more clarity. You know, my, we got out of our record deal, and I... I had a moment to breathe and kind of almost it, it was disheartening, you know. Like we had mm -hmm. we had spent all this time and work, and we had so much excitement surrounding the entire project, and um, it just didn't work out the way everyone expected it to. And and that, I don't see it as like a sad thing or a, a bad thing. I th I think it's amazing because it taught us so much, and and now we can, mm. we have so much more control over what we're doing. But I think that that was like a tr a test run, you know, almost. And then I, I'd I'd known Lynn kind of for a few years before that and her band had opened up for my band you know a couple of times or one time we just kept in touch you know and, and anytime she had any questions about programming or or any of the electronics or the synths or anything in that because um since she was a, a fan of my band I, I would just try and help her out um mm -hmm. whenever i could so yeah I, I just basically just you know like this is what you need to get you know like these sounds are great you can do this 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 and, and we had a couple phone calls where where she was able to kind of pick up on that i kind of heard through the grapevine that they were getting a record deal and i just kind of in my brain i was like oh wow this could be a fun project so texted lynn and we we started talking about it and and you know like we seemed to be on the same page about what the sound should be should be it needed to be big but and heavy but not heavy in the normal kind of way because it's i feel like it's so overdone and then it needed to be deep and I, I think a lot of the lyrics from the demos that she was sending me were these big lyrics with big emotions and I don't know the music yeah. just needed to be there to match that yeah I, I think one of my favorite things about the record and this is something I'm very obsessed with is that like you know like when you're a writer writing an article they talk about like subject verb agreement whenever there's a subject of the, the record the music matches that subject in emotion and I think that's a very rare thing in music these days I think that's one of the hidden reasons this record really hits home with you know I'm a 38 year old guy who's been listening to music like this for 20 years i still go wow this is really working thank you again mm -hmm. yeah I, i'm i'm massively influenced by film scores and i think that could mm. maybe have something to do with it so so so, so can you tell <laughs> me a little bit more about that so to, to take a little divergence yeah absolutely i've got a massive love for for films and you know obviously film soundtracks but just i don't know certain collaborations in the past like um, hit Alfred Hitchcock with Bernard Herrmann. It mm -hmm. was almost like half and half mu uh, film and, and music kind of playing their equal role to make this film come to life. So I don't know. I always kind of have that in the back of my head and, and, and try and think about 
the overall vibe and, and creating more of just like a emotional landscape, you know, with the music just as much, just to match the music or just to match the lyrics. Sorry. So I don't know. I think that could definitely have something to do with that, that making that connection between the lyrics and the music, which is, yeah, it, it is hard to come by. I think whenever mm-hmm. it, whenever it's done well, I think that that's when it clicks in people's brains and it, it's everything is right. <laughs> yes. So, 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 so I interrupted your thing. So you, you talked to Lynn, they're, they're about to get a record deal and you're like, Hey, I, yeah. I should be involved in this. Yeah. So we were texting a little bit about what this album could be. You know, she pushed for coming down to Florida basically and, and, um, spending, a couple months in my spare bedroom. Um, I was still living at home with my mom, so like we had mm. a few, be- you know, three bedroom house, and, and one of the bedrooms we, I had my studio set up in. So that's that's where we did, you know, most of the album. Only, wow. The only thing we did outside of the bedroom was was drums, which we did at a friend's living room in Orlando, which we also did with very 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 minimal gear. <laughs> huh, that's um, funny. We, yeah, but um. You know, and I, th- I mean, sonically, we'll, we can get more into that. But I think, I think, you know, we were really on the same page about what it needed to be. You know, I think, I think it's a, another thing. It's a careful thing because if you try and get too specific, then I think it's you're just making a smaller target for yourself to hit. I think it's important to go in with an open mind, and I think Lynn having an open mind made the entire thing possible because she trusted me, and I obviously I understood the amount of talent she had right off the bat and um, mm-hmm. was very try- I was just trying to nurture that and just basically draw it out and make something amazing but yeah I think uh, we were on the same page and then when she got there the first the first day she rolled in we we ended up writing the song Mirrors um, which was um, track uh, I think track 8 on the album or something mm-hmm. I think you hit a really good point here too of that like not being too specific. Like I can remember one of my biggest flaws many years ago is like when Jimmy Eat World Bleed American came out, I would try to just make everything sound like that and fail at it. And then yeah. once I got some more broad things like, oh, I can do things that sound like that too, that there's other records that are in that vein doing what I want and aiming in that general direction, I started to be yeah. a lot more happy than just going down the rabbit hole of trying to get that exact record. Right. I think it's it's actually important in, in learning. You know, um, I mean, you could say that school is copying, you know, like repeating something. And uh, I think me, I mean, I had a long period of time where I was, this has to, you know, like early days of being in a band, like, oh, this has to sound like this. This has to sound like this other band um, who's already done it. And, and I think that's just how we work you know like we we hear things and then we we make we recreate with our own take on it but you know i think it's hard sometimes to kind of you, you can box yourself in so easily and then that just completely com- stops the creative process because you've got to be willing to go in there with an open mind and and make mistakes and try things and i think that's hard for a lot of people to do because and i understand it you know like these these ideas that you've got are all you've got and you don't want them to get messed up and you don't want them to turn out wrong but there is no right way so it's almost like you just have to completely be at the mercy of just like seeing what happens just being open to things and and letting it go where it goes because it's up to nature it's it's not up to people i think i think we just repeat 
you know, and, and co- we don't really create out of thin air. <laughs> yes, I, I, yeah. I like that. Yeah. So you did talk about getting into some more specifics of the sonics of the record. Can you give us some insight to that? Yeah, honestly, I never get too deep into that. I think mm-hmm. I get very deep into inside of Pro Tools. Um, mm-hmm. Rarely, I rarely mess with too much outboard gear, just be, well, partially because I can't afford it. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I've got my kind of minimal setup that's done me well. Um, mm-hmm. And, I mean, I'd love to expand on it later, you know, and get more interesting pieces. I think it's better to have a few pieces, you know, that you know how to use well than, than it is to have a ton of gear that, that you were kind of just like... Yeah, no, I, I actually say this, uh, the recording course I did for Creative Live, is that people view audio gear different than a guitar, and, you know, if you hand me who can't play a guitar, a $5,000 guitar, it still sounds like shit, and it's the same thing with audio equipment, is that if you know that piece really well, and there was a couple of years ago, I put a year of equipment freeze on myself, and... I really didn't buy anything. I just got to know what I had, and it did be a world of good. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, if if you've got time to to learn this gear, then great. Um, you know, but I mean, honestly, I think I would rather spend the time on on something else, and just have a few solid pieces, and let somebody maybe else come in later and, and engineer. That'd be great. But yeah, we we've done everything on our own up to this point, at least. <laughs> nice. But yeah, as far as inside of Pro Tools. Um, you know, I've, I've got a ton of, you know, automation and, and distor- you know, saturators and distortions mm-hmm. and filters, and that's kind of more my world, I think. Nice. So I wanted to get your opinion about a few modern production tools. Um, how, do you, how do you feel about amp simulators? Don't really use them. I always try to record a real amp if I can. Sometimes, actually, a DI guitar, I think, can sound pretty cool. And even a DI guitar with some, some of those waves stomp plugins mm-hmm. um, can do the job without having to actually use like an amp simulator because I feel like sometimes those are a little bit too colored or a little too something. I really like a guitar tone that's kind of sounds like the guitar, you know, mm-hmm. maybe with some compression and verb on it. But yeah, I've got I've got a couple different amps that I use just mainly. And then I think when we were working on that Paris album, we might have had a couple extra amps, but really the main two amps for that album were just this uh, 67 uh, Bandmaster Uh uh, head, and uh, that was going through a cab that we had in the next room over. And then we also have a a Germino. It's like a a Marshall Plexi clone that we had. So it's for kind of, we use that a little bit more rarely. And uh, bass guitar through the same amps. Huh. As well as as DI, so... The mixer, I think, did used a combination of the DI tone and, and the guitar amps for the bass guitar, which there wasn't that much bass guitar, honestly, on that album. It was uh, yeah. a lot of guitar, but it was mainly it was used more as like this like veneer, and and mm-hmm. a lot of the songs were kind of synth driven. It was just kind of like an illusion, honestly. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I did kind of. It, it, it is funny because the notice the bass happens. We'll get kids in our studio being like, yo, make the bass sound like that part. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a part, <laughs> part with bass on the record. Oh, there it is. But yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny that it's not bass amps because, you know, kids just get so obsessed with like that thing. And, but you guys just did something cool with the tone. And obviously, Jeff Giuliano, who mixed the record, is masterfully mixed it as well. Oh, yeah. He's he's a massive part of, of the way that record sounds. The roughs were there as songs and the vibe was there. But, I mean, he really just took it and improved it, you know, like... You know, incredibly nice. How about sample drums in your productions? Um, I never really get that far either. Um, what we had was some demo drums 
as we were writing, you know, like an acoustic drum kit, which was, uh, you know, Stephen Slate drums. I just have like the instrument, the Stephen Slate. I think it's yep. the SSD4. Yep. And then if we want kind of like a real drum kit, we usually would start from there and, and um, get the vibe there. And, and uh, I think we tracked drums midway through the album, which mm. is another thing that, you know, people usually will do a little earlier on. Yeah, we're, 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 on this podcast, it seems like a lot more people are starting to track drums later in the process is a very big thing that uh, we keep hearing. Yeah, not an easy thing, you know, because just I don't have, um, you know, a ton of experience with mixing my own stuff. I, I'm lucky enough to, to have some other people come in later and help me out with that. But mm-hmm. I think the kick drum level is pretty vital, and it's usually the one thing that stays in the same spot throughout mm-hmm. most of the time I'm working on a track. So the same way the guitars are kind of a veneer over the synths and the songs are synth-driven, I think that the real drums are kind of a veneer over the program drums and are only there really to create the energy and ambience. Um, And then we let the punchy program drums kind of handle the punch and um, the deep, the deepness. And, you know, usually if I have an acoustic drum kit in a song, I'll just high pass the entire kit, you know, to at least Hmm. 50 hertz. And then let the program drums kind of handle the subby kind of kick drums and stuff like that. So that stuff's already in the session before usually we get to the studio and, rec- and track drums. Cool. So you've already went through, you, you use pitch correction as a tool. You say say you're uh, mildly OCD about it. Any insight on that? Melodyne. And that's been my main thing for a very long time. And I mean, I'm sure there's other programs equally as good. I just That's just what I've been using. That's just what I'm used to. I'll go as far as to say this. I don't think Eddie are as good as Melodyne, just Melodyne occasionally doesn't work right on certain singers. Right, right. Every singer's different, so mm-hmm. that's that's another thing. And, I mean, it's not that, you know, the singers that need more tuning or, or pitch or timing mm-hmm. correction aren't as good as other singers. It's mm-hmm. just how I, that's just how I want the vocals to sound most of the time is tight. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really say anything to me if, if a vocal take needs more or less pitch or timing correction. It's just it's just a tool I like to use to kind of make it sound sound the way I hear it. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it, you yeah. know what's nice about music is it doesn't matter how you get there as long as where you get is awesome. Yes, yes, yes. How about some favorite soft synths? Absolute favorite soft synth is a, it's called Zebra Two. It's by a company called Yuhi. Actually, they make. A bunch of other scents that I haven't even tried yet, which I, I know I should. It's, I, I kind of sleep on stuff. I tend to I can't kind of tend to take a little while before I finally discover these things that would have helped me greatly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's that was another thing that was one of the main sounds in the Paris album, uh, Zebra Two, mm-hmm. for bass synths and a lot of the factory sound, sound banks are a little too crazy sounding. So you know, like there's some good third party ones that that we have that we just kind of we're a little bit more along the lines of like a vintage synth sound. And then aside from that, I, I really like an, uh, using real analog keyboards. So we had a mm. Juno and a, a Sequential Circuits Profit and a nice. Nord Electro and a few other synths like that. And um, Yeah, some of, the, so, so, some of the best modern classics. Yes, modern classics, absolutely. So how long does it usually take for you to work on a song? A lot longer than anyone appreciates, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not true because people are appreciating what you did. Yeah, I think... I'm lucky that the people that manage me uh, also manage Paris, and that helps okay. buy me a lot of time when it comes to turning in tracks. Because you know, I do 
I do like to take my time on tracks, and I and I I almost feel like I need to in order for it to come off in the best way. So yeah, I think I can. I think the last Paris song that we finished uh, took us a year from when we tracked it. Not not constantly yeah. working, you know, but going away and coming back, which I think. It's great to have time because it's so important, but at the same time, it can it can work to your disadvantage. I think if you yeah. yeah if you spend too much time on something, you're gonna start to hear it differently, and you start to lose perspective, and you and it can get away from that original thing. So that's something to be careful about for sure. Yeah, I think finding when your your objectivity has been good, and when your objectivity started to get ridiculous, that it's just like you're changing flavors, not improving things. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a very big key to find over the years, and that's that's a, a tough one to come by. Like I, you know, I've been writing this book on the creative process, and that's the one thing like I can't figure out where to go down the road of on advice. Yeah, it's tough. It's it's and it's it's something that you just learn, just like anything else. But I think I think nowadays with with recording on laptops and plugins, it's like you have infinite tweakability. And you can always go back later and change something in any way, you know. So I think uh, almost limiting yourself sometimes, whether it be with a, uh, using a vintage synth or using a real guitar or, you know, recording with your pedals straight in. It's just like committing earlier on um, and then making it work tends to mm-hmm. yield better results than, you know, oh, this is fine for now. And then, you know, you you never come back to it and, and hear it the way that you wanted to originally hear it again. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you know, if there's one thing I think that always shocks people when they hear about, like, a really masterful record, like, whether it's, like, the fact that OK Computer, that the longest mix was four hours and the usual mix was two and a half hours, people are like, oh, they must have mixed that for a month. It's like, no, they committed to a lot of good ideas, they knew what they wanted, and then it was just a little bit of balancing and special effects. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's realizing that you have something good, you know, and going with it and committing to it early on. Tell me one of the best moments you've had in the studio. I think, you know, like we started out earlier talking about the recording process with with Versus second album that actually we weren't able to finish in in the way that we started out in the first place to finish. That was the biggest most important learning experience as far as recording that I've had to date. Um and the main thing I took from that I think is you hear something a certain way and you're the only, only one who's going to hear it that way. I mean, as mm-hmm. much as someone else can contribute, if you if you want it to come out the way you're hearing it in your head, then you have to make that happen on your own. Yeah, I think that's one of the things is learning Pro Tools gives you the power to get happy with your art or right, whatever right. you are. Yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, like making sure you've got that that balance. You're not, you're not you know, getting too too micro too early mm-hmm. on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I, I love talking about not getting too micro. What's a perfect record and what about it makes it perfect that somebody else has made? One of my favorite records of all time is uh, Fru Fru. Uh, oh, yeah. Detail, details, yeah. Uh, and it bums me out that that was the only album that they made but at the same time you know like it doesn't really bother me because it exists still and it's always going to exist and even if you know the next one I may have liked it more I may have may have liked it less but um it exists I really love that record because of the production and her vocals and the songs and I think that comparing it to what we were talking about before with the lyrics matching the the sounds and um it was just very well done I think and 
you know, it's a it's a pop record, but it's still interesting and it still has a vibe to it. That's kind of what I'm trying to do. You know, I just mm. I want to I want to I don't want to complain about pop music being so horrible and in this you know horrible state. I want to do something to try and help that. You know, and make it interesting because yes. why can't it be just because something is repetitive? I think that a song can be great in that way as well. You know, if you have a part that is so good that you just want to repeat it again and again, then then what's wrong with that? You know. I guess the overplaying, if you play any song too many times, you're yes. going to get annoyed with it. But uh, yeah, um, I don't know. I'm, I, I think that record just sounds great. And it's, uh, yeah. I had it. In, I think I had it in my CD player in my car for like two years straight when I first bought it. <laughs> and it is funny too, because that record also sonically really stands up. I think I heard it around Christmas time and it just like still this day, I was like, you know, there's nothing that has gone out of date really with that record, which is a very, very hard thing to do with that many electronic elements. Oh, right. Absolutely. Um, you know, just the the cleanliness of the vocal and all the air that was on her vocal. I mean, it was perfect for the way her voice sounds and all the um, deep kind of basses, but it wasn't, you know, you know, too, too subby and, and weird and muddy. It was just everything that sounded great. <laughs> yeah, I- so talk to me about five of your favorite records throughout your life and how they shaped you to become what you are today. I mean, I could I could be boring and easily just say every one of Bjork's albums. Um, uh-huh. Well, but, you know, that's not... That, that, <laughs> you, you know, it's like a very funny thing is like a good amount of producers are influenced by Bjork, but there is so many times, even living in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, I say Bjork, and like, oh, yeah, I should hear their rec- her records sometimes or their records. It's like, it's a her. Relax. Yeah. I mean, I don't think she was easy for me to get into, and I, I think that for a lot of people, an artist like Bjork is is actually very hard to get into. You know, with with me, her first album that I bought, I was in ninth grade, and I bought her album Post. There were about two songs on that record um, that I could really listen to over and over, and and I wanted to listen to over over and over. And one one of the songs was Hyper Ballad, which is still, oh yeah, to this day my favorite. That's that's the first song I ever cried when I heard a song the first time that it just like it floored me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It, it yeah, just, that Oh my god. So good. Yeah. But yeah, so like that was it was it was a little hard to get into the rest of the album for me. It was I felt like it was a little bit abrasive. And I think it was I was so used to hearing music sounding a different way and and you don't really like, you know, this doesn't sound right to me. Like her voice is not always on pitch and it's like sometimes it's dry and like it it really took some time for me to kind of, you know, lighten up to that album. Mm. But it be, it became, you know, it's my favorite album now. It's just like, I think it's, you know, it's an acquired taste, but I feel like there might be more to it than that. Um, and it's just a really interesting combination. Another thing about it is a really interesting combination between the past and, and present with, with mm. as far as mixing the orchestral sounds with, with the programming and electronic music. I think it's a cool how they kind of mash those two together. I really like that about it. Yeah, Mark Bell was just such a genius on that stuff, and it's a, sh- a shame those those records they made together are just such interesting tones still to this day. Yeah, oh, so good, so good. I, I I'm working on a song right now um, that I'm 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 he- still heavily influenced by that album and, and listening mm. to it listening to it very regularly. <laughs> nice. Uh, give me another one. Her album Vespertine mm-hmm. was was one that was. I feel like it was different from post. It was it was a little bit more cohesive from song to song. Um, it had a vibe about it. I think there wasn't even an, there wasn't even 
There was an interview with her talking about that album and how she made it in her house in Iceland and was very yes. quiet and whispery. And I felt like I really like that about that album, how it kind of has this vibe thread through the entire album and, and it puts you in a certain place, more, more so than Post, which was kind of like a little bit more all over the place, if that makes any sense. But yeah, that, that one has such a vibe to it. It's, it's very cinematic in the, in, in the sounds that she used on it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm gonna change it up. I don't want to keep bringing up Bjork albums. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give, give me, give me some other artists. More recently, I really got into M83. Um, yeah, their their stuff is just so good. And I mean, this is only in the past few years I've I've started jamming their albums. But um, Hurry Up or Dreaming and Saturdays equals mm-hmm. Youth. I think it's called. Yeah, that's those seemed like the ones where he came into his sound. Like the ones before, it was like, okay, you're getting somewhere, and then he really nailed it on those two. Right, right, and I mean, I think he's a he's a film aficionado, so I think mm-hmm. that that really, you know, is obvious when you listen to how how uh, cinematic those albums sound, and and he builds his his uh, kind of landscape there. So yeah, that's that's a big one for me. The Postal Service. What was their mm. album? called do they do they only have one album they only have one album they have okay, one album yeah. two b-sides right right yeah that that album was big for me too that was that was earlier on i think i was in about you know 10th grade whenever i was playing that one a lot but i just remember listening to that and it's it's the type of album with with songs on it that you just want to like replay over and over and over and and you hardly ever get sick of yeah such well crafted stuff so, so the funny thing i'm here though is you're a guitarist and there's no guitar guitar albums yet <laughs> Right, I think it's in a different section of my brain. I think, mm-hmm. I think there was a there was a shift. You know, it's like okay, I'm not a musician. I'm I'm not a guitarist. I'm a I'm you know like it's not about what I'm playing on guitar. It's about the song as a whole. So it's like you know I I don't know. I think you know I mean I love Jimi Hendrix and he's he's probably my biggest guitar influence. But hmm. I mean I I don't really listen to his albums fully. You know it's 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 more listen you know listening for that one thing and and listening for the feel and the vibe but as songs i think it's just i think it's just so important to have really 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 undeniably great songs that you just want to play over and over i i I am with you there um give me one last one the soundtrack for vertigo is probably my all-time favorite piece of music um you know it's it's you know it's a film score it's it's not like an an artist album or anything like mm-hmm. that but uh it's something that i can put on and listen to anytime and it and it makes me feel the same way every time i hear it so that's yeah that's 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 vertigo bernard herman that's a hitchcock film nice how about uh three favorite producers uh produce there's a producer in the uk named guy sigsworth mm-hmm. um who actually he was in frufru with imogen um mm-hmm. and he he did some production for bjork and toured with her as her keyboardist for a couple years and done work on a lot of yeah my i think madonna albums. too right right yeah and he's he's somebody who i massively look up to and we actually had the pleasure of collaborating with uh at one point oh wow over over skype like we're doing now. Mm. nice <laughs> Yeah, he's he's always seemed like somebody who's kind of been in the pop world, but I don't want to say above it, but just like beyond it, you know. Like he seems out of place in this this era, you know. Like he seems he's like a modern day like you know Mozart or something. I feel like maybe that's a funny way to put it, but he's kind of like I feel like his way of thinking about things has always been kind of completely different from you know other producers. Mm. No, it really um, is some amazing left field uh, stuff that he comes up with. 
Right, right. And then, you know, he also does work on, on pop artists. You know, he did work on Britney Spears and, and stuff like that. But I think it's so cool to see how he's always trying to squeeze the, the feel and the emotion kind of into the songs and make sure that that is making you feel a certain way when you hear it. Uh, it's another producer that um, I had the pleasure to work with, with Sierra, when we were um, writing a few a few years back was um, Emil Haney, um, who was, mm. was here in New York. Um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar, if you're familiar no, I'm, with I'm, I'm, fami- I'm actually not familiar, so, so yeah, tell me about it. He started out doing a lot more hip-hop stuff, and now he's working on all sorts of projects, but he, he produced Lana Del Rey's first album, and okay. um, he did the first two Kid Cudi albums. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, he and Kanye West and The Neighborhood and um, Bruno Mars and a lot of a lot of projects that I absolutely love the production on. So like, damn. Yeah, he was someone who I was just able to really just like sponge in all this inspiration from, and it was just incredibly inspiring to watch him at work. You know, and it, and it's compl- completely different style, kind of from what we were used to at the time. Like we came in there expecting to. Oh yeah, guitar tracking. You know, like oh, how are we going to record drums? But you know, he was just have he's very self sufficient in his way that he could kind of just make his way around the studio and layer in some sounds from different keyboards and samples that he had. He's he's definitely a very sample heavy producer. Nice. Um, which which I'm into. I mean, I don't particularly sample a lot personally. I would I would like to do more of it. I think it's it's really cool to be able to con- recontextualize and breathe new life into these old ideas and reinvent them in a way but yeah that was a big that was a big thing that he did and it was really really inspiring to watch him work oh i love 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 timbaland and his production oh nice (laughs) i know that's that's definitely a different turn there but yeah um i'm a massive fan of hip-hop production generally um i mean maybe not so so what are some favorites from him since he's so all over the map justin timberlake's last album um, mm-hmm. was huge for me the 2020 experience or whatever I think it was called um, but that first part I think it was like I think it was like a double album but the first the first of the two albums I just had on replay and I just love love production with a heavy bottom end and and just massive kind of bass in it um, and that's that's not always easy to get and mm-hmm. just I know from experience it's something that's been tricky to kind of get the kick drums and the and the 808 bass drums to kind of sit together in the perfect way and and it to hit right on on whatever you're listening on but um i think it's so inspiring to like watch them in the studio and like i think there's like 15 plus hours of raw uncut footage of justin timberlake in the studio on youtube right now that i've been oh really yeah just trying to like pick away at because it's it's so long but uh you know, every time I'm just sitting here eating eating a snack or like or like I order a seamless or something, I put that on <laughs> and I just kind of just let it play in the background just to kind of feel like I'm in the studio with them when they're working. It's like him and Pharrell and him and uh, all these people working on on Justified. But uh, yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Absolutely. I gotta I gotta chip away at that as well. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. It's you can literally just sit there and watch them write these these uh, legendary pop songs. It's pretty inspiring. Nice. Yeah, I, I, the, the song I come back to the most always is Nelly Furtado, Do It. I don't even like anything else much that she's oh done. But I, I was, that song, there's just like something about that production I could just listen to forever. It's so, It's got all the space, but it's so minimal. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is insane Like how there's barely an instrument doing an accompaniment part in it. Right, right. 
Oh my gosh, yeah, that that's a that's a frequent jam over here at my place. Nice, <laughs> nice. So, last musical question: uh, What's a record that's been really inspiring you lately that people might not know? Uh, Run the Jewels. Actually. Oh, nice, I'm very nice. Not sure how familiar you are. Familiar I, I, one of my one of my favorite bands. I saw them the last time they were here. Oh, I'm jealous. I haven't seen them play. <laughs> it was. It was it, I, I will say it was. It was one of the punkest shows I've ever been to. It was just like the energy was like you thought that people were going to like pick up things and throw it. Right, right. And it's. I mean, it's the sort of album. It's like unexpected. I feel like because I wouldn't even call myself a math, massive hip hop fan. I mean, like I love hip hop, but it's like it's not the world I came from. But I can really, really appreciate those two albums that they've done. Um, and even the other work that you know LP and Killer Mike have done before that, just kind of like hearing what they're doing right now, it's just like it, they're just so good at this point at what they're doing, and it's so obvious that like even if you're uh, you know not particularly a fan of that style of music, normally it's it's something that you can kind of have to undeniably agree that it's just it is very 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 good. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, 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 uh, both of those records are fantastic. Thankfully, there's another one about to come. Oh my gosh, can't wait. Nice. Um, so the last question is, uh, what have you been working on lately? I've been working on a mixture of a few different things. Um, actually, we've been working on some new Paris tracks. Nice. They've got some more stuff coming out here soon. Just a few extra tracks. Aside from that, Sierra actually from Versa and I have been creative together recently. Nice. And we're, we're actually working towards a new project at the moment. So that's... Those are my two kind of main things right now that I've I've been spending all my time on. And aside from that, I've got some one-off projects that I'm, you know, I'm equally excited about. It's just I've made the mistake before of overlo- overloading myself, so I've been very very trying to be selective about the projects I take on more than I you know sometimes I I just want to do all these projects, but I, mm-hmm. you know I just know I just can't. There's not enough hours in the day. <laughs> not not enough hours in the day, and there's only so much creative oxygen in a room. Oh wow, yeah, that is that is absolutely true. Nice. It's just like it's hard to kind of you know detach yourself from uh, a project you're working on to work on another project. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the next day it's just like there's only so much energy you have inside you to just make this work. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.